So the cases in our report um, showed how the possibility of continued indefinite detention and deportation had really detrimental effects on the mental health of uh, prisoners. And in fact, all four of the of the deaths of immigration detainees in our report, immigration detainees and foreign nationals, were self-inflicted deaths. Um, so there was a really strong link then between the you know hostile environment, mental health, and suicide. Um, and three of those people were of were of Eastern European nationality as well. And we know how the hostile environment um, has a very specific. Uh, impact on those people. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Jessica Pandian has an MPhil in Latin American Studies from the University of Cambridge in which she researched anti-black policing, gang violence and racial resistance across Latin America and the Caribbean. Jessica joined Inquest at the beginning of 2021 as a researcher with specialist focus on state violence and structural racism. She now works as a policy and research officer with a broader focus. Jessica came to Inquest from the Institute of Race Relations, where she researched the policing of black communities and black British history. She came across the work of Inquest during her time at the Institute of Race Relations through interviewing bereaved families that had lost a relative following taser usage. She was also interested in documentary filmmaking and is an advisor to the Independent Film Trust. Welcome Jessica. Hi Jessica, really nice to meet you and really pleased that you could join us today. Jessica, in your, in your biography you, that tells us a little bit about what you've done but could you say a bit more about what first interested you in Latin American studies and how this developed into examining anti-black policing and gang violence? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think my journey into this is a bit unusual, but unique. So yeah, I'll talk to that. So I did Spanish all throughout school, loved it. Then I went to university. Um, I did an undergrad in geography, but did an optional module in Spanish. So that module, it was more like a social science module that happened to be done in Spanish rather than learning the Spanish language, if that makes sense. Um, based in the context of like Latin America and Spain, um, really loved that. And I realised at that time that everything I was doing sort of revolved around Latin America because I was also dancing a lot, like salsa and bachata from the Dominican Republic. Um, I was reading and watching a lot of Latin American things, so I decided that's what I wanted to do for my master's. And... During my master's, I had the most amazing um, professor, Dr. Graham Daniel Willis, who um, is an anthropologist but focused on criminology um, in the context of Brazil. So his story is amazing, and his research at that time, he accompanied um, Homicide Detective Unit of Sao Paulo for like three years, um, and were with them when they came across... Um, 
well, the deceased people who had been killed by police. Um, so I became really fascinated in his work and he introduced me to all these other anthropologists also working on um, police violence and racism in Brazil. Um, and I just learned about the, like, the many different ways in which this topic could be uh, studied because some books he like recommended to me um, looked at the issue through the lens of like basically black black genocide, um, the genocide of black people, um, and others focused on, for example, cultural resistance to police violence. So how people in Brazil were developing community theatres. Um, that mimicked the the performance or theatricality of of police violence. Um, yeah, and I learned so much through him, and I guess the main takeaway was that you know the moment of um, the killing or the death is never the beginning or end of the story. So you know, these police killings in Brazil, they have their roots um, often in, you know, slavery. And then following the death, the family still encounter violence in the way that their loved one is, um, you know, demonised and dehumanised and their struggle for justice and accountability is very painful and violent in a different sort of way. So, yeah, basically throughout that, Throughout that masters, I really decided that that's what I police violence and state violence is something that I really wanted to work in and focus on. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. I love the um, the way that you've drawn on knowledge from different areas as well. I think we get something really rich when you know you've taken quite a different pathway, as you said. But I think we end up with quite rich different perspectives on things when when we do that so it was, it was a great to hear about how you'd come to come to be looking at this area we're going to be talking a lot today about institutional racism and although this phrase has been around since about 1999 when it was used by sir mcpherson in the lawrence report i think there's still a lack of real understanding of what this means could you describe this concept for us yeah um, so as you say, the the concept has been around for a long time, but I think that um, there is still a really great tendency to focus on acts of individual racism, which I think I talked about more in the press. So people have quite a good understanding of, for example, um, explicit um, racial slurs being said to another person and recognising that as racism. Um, but not of institutional racism, which I would describe as um, the embedded structures and policies of an institution that reproduce uh, racial inequalities and worse outcomes for racialized people, um, which which includes those individual actions. Um, and and for example, I. Um, HMIP, Her Majesty's Inspector of Prisons, recently did um, uh, a report on the experiences of black prisoners and black staff. And they, um, it's quite powerful, the testimonies that the reference of the prisoners who describe these individual acts of racism perpetrated by uh, prison officers. But what the report 
doesn't go on to say it doesn't connect the dots between all these individual acts um which is reflective of institutional racism um in our opinion so so what we try to do at inquest is we have all these individual cases which often evidence um where whereby the prison officers may have uh, committed individual acts but what we try and do is connect connect the dots to show how that, that is reflective of a prison which in gen, uh, creates worse outcomes for racialized people and how the structures of the prison themselves um, yeah reproduce that inequality yes I think you're saying that um I think there can be a tendency for people to look to see if there was malicious intent um, to deliberately put people down and um, and oppress them. But actually, there's something about within institutional racism. You're thinking about the bigger picture and how structures actually keep people in a position where they're discriminated against, even though that might not be a conscious intention to do that in the in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Do you think public sector leaders or even the government really understand the concept of institutional racism? I think they must do because the the definition's been around for a long time. As you said, my first my first report came out in um, ninety nine, and obviously since the since the murder of George Floyd, that concept has been really widely used. But I, what I would say is. They understand the term, but there is not a willingness to engage with it at all. That's why we continually see them only really talking about these individual acts, which for us um, at Incas we find quite frustrating. So that's what we try and uh, bring to the fore, I would say. And that's how we're slightly, um, I think, slightly different um, from a lot of other charities in that we're quite radical um, and uncompromising in that sense. Um, we're, we're totally independent. Um, we receive no, uh, you know, government funding, so we are definitely in a position to do that as well. Yeah. Do you think the, um, <clears throat> you know, often they have to do um, state organisations like the prison service have to do mandatory training, which is around diversity and inclusion. And I wonder if enough of that content reflects ideas about structural racism, or how much more that might be focused on. Um, the more malicious kind of actions? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. I would say that from Inquest's point of view, we do see the prison in and of itself as um, an institution which upholds structural racism uh, in society in the sense that... um, in, in the sense that, for example, it's racialized groups who are overrepresented in prison in prison they have worse outcomes so so we wouldn't see the answer to institutional racism in prisons uh, as being staff training or diversity and inclusion if that makes sense even if all the prison officers did perfectly reflect society it is an institution which by its very nature, um, will reproduce will reproduce worse outcomes. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that that might be a bit of a wasted endeavour, and we're better off looking at policy and strategy that underpins in the first place. Exactly, taking that broader look um, 
into why we have prisons in society is where we try and focus our energy. Thank you. <clears throat> After working for the Institute of Race Relations, you went to work for Inquest. Can you tell us a bit about the work of the organisation? And you've mentioned already it's quite radical um, and why it seemed a natural next step for you. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a bit uh, before I started working at the Institute of Race Relations, which is that I'd only I'd only studied state violence and racism in the context of like Latin America and, and America. Um, so I wanted to learn about it in the context of the UK because I hadn't at school, hadn't at university. So that's why I started volunteering um, with the Institute of Race Relations. Um, so yeah, I was volunteering with them and then whilst I was there, there was this, uh, there were like three really contentious uses of taser used against black men one of them, Jordan Walker Brown, he was paralysed um, from the waist down after being tasered. Uh, another one, he he was a father and he'd been tasered in front of his son. And the son was obviously very traumatised. And the third one, it was uh, the rapper Wretch 3-2's father, who was 62 years old, who had been tasered in his home. So I, so I decided, like, oh my god, this is really... There's obviously something happening here. No one's writing about it so I wanted to um, write about those three cases um, and it and it grew into a bigger piece than I had imagined um, and through writing that piece I got in touch with Inquest to talk to the families of Mark Cole and Adrian McDonald who had both died following the use of taser um, and actually their family both families are amazing they they put together a campaign called End Taser Torture. And through talking to those families, I came across the work of Inquest and came to learn and came to learn more about them and follow their work. Um, and it just so happened that, well, not just so happened, following the, de uh, the murder of George Floyd, they had this job opening for um, someone to work in structural racism and state violence, which was just a really natural perfect opening for me and really natural uh progression i guess so yeah um and that's how i came to work at inquest thanks jessica we came across your work through an article you wrote in the guardian together with um deborah coles also of inquest the title of the article was in britain a jail sentence is often a death sentence what is going on in our prisons so what did you mean by that yeah, um, well, from our work, we see how many deaths occur in prisons. Um, in my report, we've evidenced that in, from 2015 to 2022, 2,220 people died in prisons, which is just extortionate. Um, so from our point of view, we see how um, prisons expose people in prison to death um, and and how it contributes towards preventable and premature deaths. So, for example, um, a case included in a report which I recently wrote, Niall Dillon, he was a 22-year-old um, man and he died of asthma in prison and we, and we think that's very unlikely to have happened outside prison. It's just um, the very nature of the prison which has extremely rudimentary healthcare, the systemic neglect contributed to that death. Um, same with Winston Augustine, who 
who um, didn't receive, you know, food for 48 hours in prison and then died in a state of uh, ketoacidosis, which is suggestive of starvation. Um, these cases really exemplify how the prison is a deathly environment um, for, for people. Yeah, that's what we meant. <laughs> so in particular, highlighting the area of risk, particularly for most uh, vulnerable and also, as you describe it, racialised people. Definitely, but I think also the fact that even if you're not considered um, a vulnerable person, if you don't have pre-existing vulnerabilities, the prison can very easily um, induce and engender that um, because of the poor state of mental health care, physical health care and that embedded neglect. Um, so anybody entering prison will be exposed to those um, to the the harm and violence that that environment creates. Thank you. So obviously the Guardian article you wrote was really based upon and referring to the uh, major report which um, you and uh, Inquest had uh, uh, complete. It was called Deaths of Racialised People in Prison 2015 to 2020. 22, Challenging Racism and Discrimination. And in the report, and I've mentioned just now, you used the, the word um, racialised uh, frequently. Can you say precisely what you mean by that? Yeah, so we took a lot of time and care to come um, and decide on that word. But to say that this report was quite unique in the sense that we... Um, included so many different groups in the report. So we included black and mixed race people, Asian and mixed race people, uh, people of Eastern European uh, background, white gypsy and Irish traveller people, white Irish people. So because we had such a large group, we wanted a term that best reflected all of them. And we chose racialized because it signifies, one, people who have been subject to racism, um, and two, because um, the definition for racialised people, which I have here because it's slightly um, long, is uh, because it refers to this complex process of racialization which is the process through which societies construct races as real, different and unequal in ways that matter to economic, political and social life. Um, and in this, this definition, it excludes white British people because although they can also be racialised, historically um, in society they've had the, the power to racialise others. Um, so yeah, there's my slightly complicated answer, but um, that's why that's why we decided to use that term, and that's what it means. Thank you. Well, I'm glad I asked the question because it is quite a complex term. There's a lot of meaning wrapped up in that particular word, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, a lot to a lot to consider, but we, yeah. Thank you. So how did you conduct the research for the uh, 
report was it easy to access the information you needed hmm. M mixed so we did a lot of different we engaged in a lot of sort of different uh research methodologies for this the first thing that we did was that we gathered um 22 of our own cases of on the death of racialized people in prison so we already had that information and we had access to the families and we wrote out um, the summaries of the deaths um, and we got the quotes from the families. Um, so that bit was relatively comprehensive because we had all that information. Um, and related to that, we then looked across all these 22 deaths and analysed what were the underlying uh, cross-cutting issues across those deaths. Um, to draw out those institutional uh, issues relating to the prison. So that was the first thing. The second thing was difficult because we wanted um, to get data from the government about um, all the people who had died in prison, um, information on them relating to their ethnicity, nationality, gender, age, that was not publicly available. There was no ethnicity breakdown. So what we had to do was file numerous freedom of information requests um, to the Ministry of Justice um, and obtain that data. And we had to engage in some negotiations with them. Um, so that part wasn't easy at all, but we did manage to get it in the end, which means that we have the first uh, available public breakdown of um, about deaths in prison. Um, and the third thing that we did was we analysed all the post-death investigations relating to the 22 deaths. Um, so this included um, inquests, uh, inquest reports, um, prevention of future death reports and uh, prison and probation ombudsman um, fatal incident reports. Um, to see whether either the race of the person was addressed or whether um, the, the potential role of racism in the death had been addressed. Um, so those were our three main uh, research methodologies. Why, why do you think that that information wasn't so freely available? I mean, it seems like pretty standard information that you would expect to be in the public domain so I, I you know I feel quite incredulous that that wasn't wasn't easily available exactly to you. and we felt exactly the same way that it sh definitely should be there and that's one of the recommendations that we make we shouldn't have had to have gone through that process um, anybody should be able to access it but this is something that we encounter a lot in our work that the data that we think should be uh, publicly available is not you have to put in a lot of effort to be able to get there you have to engage with a lot of experts to be able to access that information often through freedom of information requests but for the public it's just not it's not really doable um it's made very difficult so this is something else that we think is reflective of um you know the government's willing and unwillingness to engage seriously in the issues that we're talking about um and to deflect attention away This is extraordinary considering that many prison staff spend hours completing reports and 
filling in tick boxes. Yeah. So often reports about prisons can make staff seem harsh and uncaring and yet we've both worked with colleagues who are both caring and dedicated. Do you think that having fresh eyes like yours enables you to see things that we maybe have become accustomed to and don't notice so much? I think it's a really interesting um, question so I guess there's two parts to it. So the first part is that yeah I hadn't uh, really spent dedicated time working in prisons before um, doing this report so when I did first learn of these cases I was really shocked to see what I saw for example I mentioned Winston Augustine who died essentially in a state of starvation um, another case Annabella Landsberg who's a mixed race um, black woman she was uh, restrained in her segregation cell um, after which she was just lying on the floor for 21 hours and people, uh, healthcare staff and prison staff knew that but they didn't help her and actually one um, nurse threw water over her um, and didn't help her so that was particularly shocking. Um, but again, what I would say that now having worked in this area for a little bit longer, um, these instances of neglect we we see across all cases um so it's not something exceptional to specific cases and that that's something we see as reflective of um the prison culture and the prison environment as a whole and that even for example we we understand that there are people who are compassionate and do go in with good intentions um but that that rarely um, is able to surface or con or contribute in a meaningful way because of the way in which a prison because of the way in which a prison is a sort of dehumanizing and demeaning institution to people inside so an example of that is um the the death of Jordan Hullock um who was a 19 year old who died in 2015 of um, meningitis and his condition had been worsening for some time over days um, and there was one prisoner who really went against the grain of everyone else and really was trying to help him bringing him water and food and paying paying closer attention to him but despite her efforts she was she was not able to save him um, and he died um, so so yeah I, I guess my point being that even if we, you have compassionate individuals in the system, it's sort of it, it's difficult in an institution which, which in and of itself is not compassionate. Um, so it's sort of an oxymoron. Um, what we campaign for is a more compassionate society in the sense that to reduce um, this the idea that we need prisons and the criminal justice system and society to to pay more attention to, you know, developing healthcare and education and being more compassionate to individuals before they have to enter the criminal justice system. Yeah, I think you're highlighting some really excellent points about our attitude towards people who break the law more generally and whether there might be more compassionate ways to manage them. I'm just thinking about some of those instances of staff being compassionate and I think sometimes people might 
sit back on knowing that they're being compassionate in their role but there's something you know I'm, I'm guessing with the individual that threw water on on um, on the woman that you referred to that other staff were aware of that and you know whether that whether there's a challenging of people that behave in less humane less compassionate ways that's just as important as being compassionate yourself isn't it so what were the main findings of your research Jess? Yeah so we had um, three main findings um, if I just refer to them quickly because they're quite long um, so as I said we did an analysis of the 22 deaths and we found um, seven key cross-cutting issues across their deaths so I'll just go over them um, briefly now so the first one was the inappropriate use of segregation um, and this was predominantly an issue in the deaths of black and mixed race people so often people were not assessed or at all or they were assessed very poorly before being put in segregation whilst in segregation the mental health was not assessed um, and what often ended up happening was a serious decline in, in their mental health. Um, the second one was racial stereotyping, again, mostly an issue in the deaths of black and mixed race um, people. So they were often stereotyped um, as aggressive, as non-compliant and as challenging. So they were seen as a discipline, discipline and control problem. Um, and racial stereotyping in and of itself had, had its own ramifications, so this often justified inhumane treatment, uh, disciplinary treatment, and often um, it gave rise to a culture of uh, disbelief. So that case that I just mentioned of Annabella Landsberg, she was frequently described as challenging, which is why she got placed into segre uh, segregation, probably linked to her, her use, the use of restraint against her, how she got waterboard on her, etc. Thirdly, we have the hostile environment. So the Home Office's inherently discriminatory hostile environment policy encourages the continued detention and deportation of foreign um, nationals. So the cases in our report um, showed how the possibility of continued indefinite detention and deportation had really detrimental effects on the mental health of uh, prisoners. And in fact, all four of the, of the deaths of immigration detainees in our report, immigration detainees and foreign nationals, were self-inflicted deaths. Um, so there was a really strong link then between the you know hostile environment, mental health, and suicide. Um, and three of those people were of were of Eastern European nationality as well. And we know how the hostile environment um, has a very specific uh, impact on, on those people. Um, the three and four were the neglect of physical and mental health, and these were seen across most of the cases. Um, I think regarding health, uh, the neglect of physical health, that was mostly seen amongst black and Asian uh, prisoners. And often what would happen is that their, you know, their families would call in, other prison staff would alert uh, the prison to the issue of someone's deteriorating health, but it just wouldn't be acted on and it would worsen to the point of no return. Um, 
and it would be exacerbated by inadequate healthcare in prison more generally. Um, mental health, there was, again, across the cases, there was a really strong link between mental health and suicide, um, primarily amongst people of Eastern European nationality and black people. Um, in the fifth point was that there was a failure to respond to warning signs. So, for example, there are emergency cell bells in prison which should be responded to within five minutes and often they wouldn't be responded to at all or they'd be responded to with severe delays um, which contributed to deaths. Um, also, there would be times when uh, prison officers would look into cells and see that... Uh, they wouldn't get any response from the person, but still wouldn't act on, on that. Um, and there'd be serious delays, and then eventually they'd go in and the person would not be responsive. Um, again, mostly an issue amongst black and mixed-race people. And then lastly, we have bullying and victimisation. And the three cases that we have in the report um, were black and mixed-race people. Um, and two of the men who were bullied took their own life whilst another was killed by another prisoner. So these are really severe, severe instances of bullying and victimisation. Um, uh, yeah, those were the main findings of the, of the cases. Then the data is um, slightly more complex to understand. So with deaths in police... Um, we see disproportionate numbers of uh, black and racialized people dying in police custody. It's not the same in prison, and we think that this could be due to the makeup of the prison in the sense that older prisoners tend to be um, mostly white, and then younger prisoners tend to be um, mostly black and um, minority ethnic prisoners. So whilst there isn't, um, there aren't disproportionate numbers of uh, black and racialized people dying in prison, what we did learn was that there were extremely, that people of Eastern European nationality um, and white and gypsy Irish people, for example, had really high rates of um, self-inflicted deaths, especially compared to white prisoners. Um, that was a key finding, and we also saw how every racialized group died at younger ages compared to the white group. Again, this could be reflective of the the makeup of um, different dem demographics in prison, but we thought it was quite a, an important finding. And then, lastly, with regards to our analysis of um, post-death investigations. Um, we found that none of the investigations related to the 22 deaths um, addressed whether uh, racism was potentially a role in any of the deaths. And that was particularly, um, that was quite a hard-hitting finding because the 22 deaths that we featured in the report um, definitely do evidence um, racism. They're really shocking cases. Um, so we thought that spoke you know, in and of itself, that said quite a lot. So, yeah, those were the main findings. Thank you. That's that's quite shocking, quite shocking to hear that that hadn't even been picked up as a theme and perhaps as something about society generally and its um, understanding understanding of race. But what, what recommendations did you come to as a consequence of, of your findings? So, 
as I said before, we did um, make one recommendation that the government should publish all the data on prison deaths um, so that it is publicly available. Um, our fir the first recommendation that we issued was that um, we wanted the specific issues um, in the deaths of racialized people to be addressed by the Ministry of Justice, the Department of Health and Social Care and Government. And we wanted those relevant government bodies to develop a detailed action plan to address those distinct issues. Um, unfortunately, we haven't um, heard of any progress on that, but um, we think it's really important. Thirdly, we wanted um, po all these process investigations to meaningfully consider the potential role of racism or discrimination in the death. And we think that, it, that is so important because um, it could lead to the prevention of future deaths and we need to be able to evidence it and see how these, how these issues surface across different deaths um, in order to prevent them. Um, in fourth place, so this is an ongoing... Uh, campaign we have to establish the national oversight mechanism because at present all of the recommendations made for example um, in inquest reports and prevention of future death reports um, are not followed up on and there's nothing to hold these um, like bodies accountable to make sure that they do implement those recommendations. Um, so the national oversight mechanism would be able to then do that. There would be an independent body tasked with the duty to collate, analyse and monitor learning and implementation arising out of post-death investigations and inquiries. And the last recommendation we have is broader, and I think I've spoken to this um, a bit uh, beforehand, but we call it transformative social change. Um, so, as I said, the decision to imprison the 22 racialized people featured in the report ends up being a death sentence. Um, we see imprisonment as ineffective in reducing crime and violence in society, and we see it as perpetuating harm and violence with marginalized groups worse affected. So, what we would like to see is the halting of prison building, which at the moment, you know, the prison uh, population has increased so much and their plans to increase it even further. We'd like to decrease investment in the in the prison um, and in prisons and the criminal justice system more broadly and redirect those resources into education, health, welfare, housing, education and social care, which would, you know, address the root causes of violence in our society. Thank you. Um, I find myself becoming more depressed as the longer we go on in this conversation, uh, Jess, because you're describing really a whole system which is under-functioning, and there may be reasons for that, uh, and where, where the culture is corrupted to the point of uh, being lacking in compassion, to the point of being cruel, and then which furthermore doesn't have a properly and effective uh, investigation uh, system which can operate in a, a sort of independent process. All very depressing. So, Sorry about that, yes, but that is the state of affairs. <laughs> yes. So one of the most disturbing comments in your report came from the sister of one of your 
selected examples, Tariq, when she describes the lack of empathy and compassion coming from a health professional. Do you think there is something about working in a prison that saps people's capacity for compassion? Um, yes, I imagine so, because as I've said, it's an institution which, you know, dehumanises and demeans by its very nature. It was It's set up on the logics of punitivism, um, not to care, not to care for people and to be an uh, institution in which people thrive. So because of that, even if you go in with good intentions, I think, as I've said, it, it either it won't surface or materialise or the the prison environment will um uh you know mean that you don't see those people in prison um with compassion or as humans um and i would say that you know related to what i said before that it, our vision at inquest is not to have a prison filled with for example, compassionate workers, because we believe it to be an oxymoron. What we'd rather have is not have prisons and the criminal justice system not be so overly reliant on them, and instead to have that compassion in society, so that people, so that um, people wouldn't even have to go into prison, so that you have those healthcare and the education and the social care set up, so that people could live. Um, full and meaningful lives outside um i think and you know angela Davis said it as well prisons they don't disappear social problems they disappear you know human beings it's, it's not it's not an answer um for the poverty and inequality that we see um yeah thank you so this particular example we were referring to is about a healthcare professional. Do you think this might reflect the double whammy of institutional racism in the NHS operating within the prison system? Well, well, yes, I would say, you know, we have in institutional racism built into most of our institutions, um, prison, policing, healthcare. So, yes, um, most definitely. And um, her brother, uh, Mohammed, he, he also died in a state of starvation um, and alone, um, and, you know, neglect was a part of that. Um, it's just a really terrible death, actually. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, all these, all these institutions, they are linked, and they speak to the structural racism embedded in our, in our society, and also, I think, of, of the way in which our society is so d dependent on on um, these punitive ideals, especially with with this government that we have now, we're looking to become even more reliant on the criminal justice system. So, yeah, I mean, in each of these cases, it speaks to society as a whole and, and just shows where everything's gone wrong because it's never just one issue in prison. If you look at the whole uh, the whole lives, even before they go into prison, you see so many issues um, that they face outside of prison. Share David's kind of experience of, you know, this is a really depressing subject to focus on. And, and actually, the, the, I think thinking about imprisonment generally is, is pretty depressing because I think anyone who starts looking at it knows that prison doesn't really work to, um, to address any kind of 
dysfunction um, and can often amplify difficulties. Um, so I think digging into this subject where that's probably particularly prominent feels feels really quite depressing. How um, how do you manage to look after your own well-being and keep yourself going, feeling resourced and nourished doing the kind of work that you're doing, Jess? Um, I mean, I feel really privileged to be able to do the work that I do. Um, but I would say that in terms of keeping myself, you know, not not super depressed because the the work is depressing. I really I really enjoy artistic work, you know, delving into the more creative uh, sphere to address the same issues but in a uh, in a really different sort of way. So I really enjoy I'm making my own short film at the moment. I really enjoy editing, um, and I write you know film reviews. I watch a lot of film, so. Um, I think that's one way in which that's my sort of happy, happy place. I really enjoy that um, because, yeah, the work we do at Inquest, it's very direct, it's very full on, but it's really, it's really beautiful to be able to engage with the, the same sort of topics, but from that creative uh, perspective. Like I watched, a, I watched a film actually the other day, it's called Surge, it's really amazing, it's um, basically about uh, a man in mental health crisis um, in London and it really spoke to a lot of the cases that I've seen in the sense that you see the police intervening rather than like a mental health professional but it was it was done so artistically and beautifully and the acting was lo- uh, just amazing um, so yeah I, I, I enjoy I enjoy that part of it I think and at Inquest we have our 40th anniversary coming up so we are doing some you know artistic projects ourselves there um, which I've been lucky enough to be involved with Um, but apart from that I've just joined the gym (laughs) that's helped (laughs) I've been doing my Zumba Um, yeah yeah it's definitely a balance and I think you're always you're always working to adjust it but yeah, that's what I'd say. Thank you. It's really nice to hear about the um, use of creative endeavour because I think, you know, creativity is kind of the counteraction to the corrosiveness of of the work that you're engaged in, but obviously really, really important work to be doing and, and making a, a huge contribution to our understanding of what, what's wrong with society. So thanks very much, Jess. Really enjoyed the conversation with you, if not the subject matter itself. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you both as well. Thanks very much indeed, Jess. Uh, like uh, Naomi said, very challenging but very uh, informative and interesting conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs>